Now, it's time for the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast with Dean Linke. The National Soccer Coaches Association of America is the go-to resource for soccer coaches of any level. From advocacy, education, and networking, the NSCAA has something for everyone. Join the world's largest soccer coaches organization today. Now, here's our veteran soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke. Hello and welcome to the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. I am Dean Linky, and thanks for being a part of Episode 7 of our weekly College Soccer Podcast. This show, well, I'm going to call it our Big Personality Show because we do indeed have some big personalities and as always, we have every level of college soccer covered. So when you think big personalities in soccer over the years, it does not get much bigger then USA soccer superstar and now a lead analyst for Fox Sports, the big redhead, Alexi Lalas. Alexi joins me off the top to talk about how he ended up at Rutgers, where he played four years, by the way, playing soccer and ice hockey, his path from college to stardom, and where he sees college soccer fitting in as part of the overall soccer landscape in this country. I hope you enjoy an extended interview with Alexi. From there, Bob Butehorn joins me. Bob is the head coach of the Florida Gulf Coast men's soccer team, the highest-scoring team in NCAA Division I men, and currently riding a nine-game winning streak. Yes, all wins, and that is a record. Nikki Izzo-Brown has West Virginia at number one. For the first time in Mountaineer history, the 21-year head coach at West Virginia has never had a losing season, never, ever, and she is on the program. We pop in on Division Three, and speaking of personalities, you're going to love Ryan Souders, who has Calvin College in Grand Rapids in the top 25 just a year after making it to the Final Four. He is so much fun and a future star for sure. We bounce back up to Division Two and visit with Travis Cannell, who is loving life at Western Washington, where he has his team at number one in the NCAA D2 Women's Rankings. Mark Sicoria has Parkland College from Champaign, Illinois at number four in the NJCAA Division I men's rankings. He, from time to time, shares notes with NSCAA Honor Award winner Janet Rayfield, the head coach of the Illinois women's soccer team. And Chad Waller breaks down NAIA men and women like only Chad Waller can. Big-time programs, big-time coaches, and big-time personalities. And we kick off with one of the biggest in the history of U.S. soccer, Alexi Lalas, right after this message. The NSCAA is 75 years strong and continues to provide quality service and benefits to soccer coaches. Whether you're a youth, high school, college, or professional coach, the NSCAA works to be a voice for you. Speaking of voice, once again, here's Dean Linky. And so I'm calling this the Big Personality Show. And when you think about legendary figures in U.S. soccer, perhaps the most iconic male soccer player of all time was the red-bearded wonder who wore number 22, talking about Alexi Lalas. And here's a guy who grew up in Michigan, an ice hockey and soccer player, went to Rutgers, building a program that would go to the Final Four and the National Championship game in the early 90s. He won the Mac and the Herman Player of the Year, would go on to the 92 Olympics, wasn't sure what he was going to do. Bora Militinovich, the head coach of the 1994 U.S. World Cup team, 
absolutely loved him. He started every game for the USA in the 1994 World Cup, helping the USA advance to the second round for the first time ever. Of course, he would go on to play in Italy, have a storied career in Major League Soccer. He would work in front offices of Major League Soccer, and now he is the number one analyst at Fox, along with Eric Wilnalda, who was also on that 1994 U.S. World Cup team. He is articulate. He is talented, a musical superstar. He really is everything. So many layers to the great Alexi Lalas, and he joins me now. Alexi, so great to have you on the program. Dean Linky, my main man, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, it is an absolute pleasure to be uh, talking to you. Uh, we have a, a long and storied history uh, back in the 1900s when maybe many of your Listeners weren't even born. We were fighting the good fight. Well, that's, you know, I appreciate you saying that because I feel like, you know, I see all of your success, but I feel like it's still my job to let people know how incredible you were, you know, in Michigan and then at Rutgers and everything else. And full disclosure, I was the press officer of the 92 Olympic team when Alexi Lalas burst onto the scene. And of course, that's not true. He burst onto the scene at Rutgers. And then, of course, I was the press officer for the 94 World Cup team. Basically, Alexi, we lived together for a couple years uh, with Bora Militinovich. That was so much fun, wasn't it? That was great. It was great times, and, and for maybe some of your listeners that, that don't know the whole story, we, we trained actually for two years before the 94 World Cup in, in residency, and uh, it was an education on the field, but also off the field, you know, working with, with guys like you, and you know, how the media works, and how to function within that, and, and how to use what you have at your disposal, and how to play up things that um, that can be beneficial to you and to the team and all that kind of stuff. It was it was a real educational process for me and, and ultimately culminated that summer in the World Cup in 1994 in the United States. And I, I lived the power of what a World Cup could do to an individual and uh, – and, and off from there, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm talking to you today is is because of that 1994 World Cup and, and all of the opportunities that came. So it's it's been a, a, a wonderful and wild and crazy ride for, for everybody. And sometimes those, those stories and, and what the landscape was back then uh, get lost in time. But I'm, I'm glad to say that we have evolved and moved on, especially over the last couple of decades in terms of what we have on the field from a soccer perspective in the U.S., and certainly off the field in terms of the culture that we have. Well, we salute you for really doing so much to pave that path. But before we were in Mission Viejo, you were in Michigan, and then you were in Rutgers. And, of course, this is the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. So I want people to know about the process, okay? You're in Michigan playing ice hockey and soccer, and you picked Rutgers. Talk about that process, Alexi, if you can. Take us back to that time. So I was doing what a lot of uh – kids that uh, that are fortunate enough to do uh, to do it do uh, in your what junior year sophomore year you're you're starting to look at, at possibilities now I was a, a good soccer player and a good hockey player but I also was coming back in the 80s 1980s uh, out of Michigan which was not a hotbed and was not looked at as a hotbed of, uh, of college or potential college soccer talent so uh, I had a, a list of different places that I applied to, and very quickly I started getting rejected in a lot of places. And the uh, the soccer part of the equation wasn't helping me. Uh, I had average grades. Um, I went to a very good school, in uh, prep school, in uh, right outside of Detroit, in the suburbs of Detroit. But there were not a lot of uh, not a lot. There were no uh, real offers at the point in terms of places to go. And my father called up Rutgers University. Uh, I only had looked at Rutgers because I had seen them on the cover of Soccer America. And I saw a picture of Peter Vermes, and 
I had read up about them, and they had a good soccer program. And I knew I, I wanted to try to play Division One college soccer uh, along with my academics. And he called up at the time. The coach was Bob Riasso, and he said, look, I got this kid, and these are the grades, and this is the situation. And Bob, to his credit, and I will forever be thankful, said, all right, well, can, can I meet him? And we got in the car, and we drove out the, the 12 hours or whatever it was from Detroit to uh, Rutgers University. I'd never been to uh, Rutgers University, exit nine off the New Jersey State uh, Turnpike, or uh, <laughs> let alone to New Jersey. We met with Bob Riasso for a couple of hours. He said, look, I can, uh, I can invite you to preseason, and I can get you into the agriculture school. <laughs> now, I, I'm from Michigan, but I sure, I sure didn't grow up on a farm, but that was – all that I had, and I took it. So I, I basically did everything wrong in terms of picking a college. It was complete luck and, and fate, and I was very, very fortunate to be able to come into a program that was kind of going through a rebuilding process, so I was able to come in and start right away. Uh, but it did expose me to much better quality competition. I was playing with the best of the best when it came to New Jersey talent, and we all know the hotbed is, that is New Jersey so it just it it worked out great, but I don't I don't recommend it in terms of the way you go about it. It's, it's a lot easier today for kids to, to to understand what's out there and for coaches to see it. And certainly for a kid from Michigan, it's a whole lot easier today than it was back in the in the 1980s. But what success though? Are you kidding me? The Final Four in '89, the national championship game in '90, and meanwhile you're playing ice hockey and you're the leading you're leading the team in goals in '89. How did you do both? And you said they were rebuilding. I mean, you almost won the national championship, Lex. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I said, I came into a program that that was losing some players, and uh, Bob Riasso also asked me if I'd ever played uh, in the back and uh, as a defender, and I completely lied and told him yes. And uh, they, they put me in there, and I kind of was this sweeper position that I just really gravitated to and, and adapted to really, really quickly. Uh, while I was at Rutgers, I was also playing for their, the, the uh, Rutgers hockey team there. And, yes, going to school and, uh, and, and, and not just playing, playing sports and going to school, but everything that comes from going to, to college soccer. I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more, about the experience of being in college and, and the benefits and maybe some of the drawbacks for a potential professional soccer player. But at the time, I didn't look at myself necessarily as a potential professional soccer player. So I was going through all of these different things on and off the, the soccer field or on and off the ice and just having a blast doing it. And it was very, very different than the world that I came from in Michigan to go to Rutgers and to go to New Jersey and to be at a, at a, in a university that had, what, 25,000 people in it and uh, just a very different uh, just mindset and and uh, and culture and all that kind of stuff. It was it was eye opening to say the least. So what does that mean? That means you're good and lucky, or lucky and good? Because I mean, you won the Herman Trophy, you won the Mac. Uh, and how are you not thinking about that next step when you're being recognized as the best of the best? Well, you know, once I started playing at Rutgers and I started to get some uh, some accolades, and you know, you 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 end up being an All American, and not only are you playing, but you're you're being a captain, and, and you you really feel that you deserve it because I didn't know anything other than Michigan soccer at that time. I had been called into a couple um, national team like under sixteen uh, camps out in Colorado Springs, but for the most part, I didn't know if I really fit in and. To, to actually do it at Rutgers because of the level that Rutgers was and to have success, it, it signaled to me that, yeah, you, you, you belong here. You deserve to be here and you can be good uh, and you can be very good. 
and, and, and no, it wasn't all luck. I mean, I worked my ass off uh, to, to get to, to where I was, but I was also given platforms. And whether it's, you know, along the way, you always have to have champions. You have to have people that believe in you, and sometimes people that believe in you when others don't. And so whether it was just my father picking up that phone and saying, look, this, this kid, uh, I, I want to give him the opportunity of being able to play Division One college soccer at a place so i'm going to do everything i can and picking up or bob riasso the coach at the time taking a chance on a guy from michigan and let's be honest being in in new jersey in the state school of new jersey you didn't need to go out and find talent elsewhere and so i i came to him but still the ability for him to recognize an opportunity uh, and a potentially good thing even though it, it kind of fell into his lap that that's a quality and, and that's a value in a head coach and in, in being able to see how something that's not traditional can, can be beneficial. And then there's many other people in, in, in my life uh, that went forward that have been able to champion me. But, you know, you, you work hard, you have some support, and, yes, you do get some breaks. And it's not always fair. Life isn't fair and soccer isn't fair. And sometimes you have to recognize when those moments are that you can take advantage of, and it could be through, uh, in this case, it was just lucky that it was this rebuilding process of a couple of uh, seniors that weren't there and op- opportunities on the field. It can be injury. It can be any number of things that when that opportunity comes along, grab it with both hands, recognize it, suss it out, assess it, and then have the the courage to grab it with both hands and not let go. All right, so quick comment on Bob Riasso. He actually opened the first NSCA College Soccer Podcast, and why not? He finished undefeated last year, winning the D2 title at Pfeiffer. What a job he did. You know, he, he wasn't done, right? He wanted to keep coaching. What did he mean to you? Yeah, so, you know, Bob Riasso was the coach at Rutgers for over 30 years. And, and when we talk about coaches in any sport, there's the actual X's and O's. And Bob Riasso, for the first time, was teaching me to look at myself and look at the game in a different way and to really assess how to play uh, defense, both individually and collectively in a, in, a, in a back line and within a team, all of that kind of stuff we were, we were thinking about and breaking down. And I was doing it alongside some very, very good players. You're talking about you know, the likes of uh, Lino DiQualo and, and these types of, of really, really good New Jersey players that uh, that I had never played alongside, let alone against. And then there's the actual competition each and every week playing against the best around the country, which really, really helped. Bob Riasso was not only a good coach in terms of the X's and O's and teaching me about soccer, but he was also somebody there that cared about that I was going to class, how my family was, me in particular being from out of state. And, and for those that don't know, Rutgers is the state university and basically 1% or 2% of the, of the 25, 30,000 people that are there are from out of state. So I was a real anomaly, and, and I, I was literally far from home, and it was a very, very different environment than anything I was used to. So making sure that I was adapting and that I was, that I was good, I mean, all of those different things, but, but ultimately supporting me in everything I did. He supported the hockey that I did, although he was worried that I was going to get hurt. Uh, he had supported the music that I did, because at that point I was playing in bands and playing out. Um, and, and, and just, you know, he was always wanting to know how your life was going as opposed to how the soccer was going. I think he, he felt that if he had a handle and was being supportive in terms of how your life was going and, and helping you go through this crazy time of your life when you're at college, then the soccer would also be able to come. But if you didn't get both of those things right, then certainly the soccer wasn't going to, uh, wasn't going to be able to function. 
I love the 26-year plan because your U.S. <laughs> national team career was taken off, Alexi, but you said, you know what, I'm going to get my degree, and you got your degree. Why was that so important to you, Alexi? So, yeah, I, I graduated in the uh, summer of 2014. Now, keep in mind that I arrived at Rutgers University in the summer of 1988. So it was a 26-year plan. Um, I deviated for a number of years because of soccer. And, and look, I played about uh, I played four seasons at Rutgers, but I ended up getting credits for about, I don't know, if you, if you total it all up, about two and a half years. And uh, I wanted to go back, and I wanted to finish something that I started for myself, both of my parents were, uh, you know, my father was a, a professor and my mom was a writer. And so they never envisioned their son being a professional athlete. It's not that they didn't support my sports, but education was paramount to them. And, and, and to be able to finish it and to say that I, that I completed my degree was important to them. It was important to me. It was important to my kids. I wanted them to see that you start something, that you, that you finish it. And uh, I went back and basically did that year and a half to, to two years worth of credits in a year and just blazed through it through the summer and everything and was able to graduate in 2026. Hardest thing I've ever done, but also the most satisfying. And uh, they often say that the education is wasted on the youth, and, and it is. I appreciated the, the classes and the studying so much more than I ever did when I was, you know, 18 to, to 21. But anyway, I, I finished up my fourth uh, season at Rutgers, and it became apparent that I was going to at least have an opportunity to try to be a professional soccer player. And I left school in the fall of uh, 1991 uh, and started training for the, then, as we said, the Olympics in 1992 because they had asked us all to become full-time gearing up for that uh, Summer Olympics in 1992 in Barcelona. Thanks so much for telling that story, Alexi, because I think it's a great message to go back and get your college degree, and obviously it was something important to you. And, boy, I remember now, actually, when Rutgers came into the Big Ten, I was calling that game Rutgers against Wisconsin. They actually beat the Badgers in Wisconsin, their first ever win in the Big Ten. And at halftime, we actually had pictures of you getting your diploma. That was great to see. Obviously, from there, you moved on to the Olympic team and the U.S. World Cup team, Lothar Osiander and Bora Militinovic. What did those coaches mean to you, Alexi? Yeah, so then I played in the 92 uh, Olympics, and Lothar Osiander was my next big coach, uh, the coach of the Olympic team. And, you know, this was a guy who really, once again, said, this is what you're good at, and this is how I need you to affect change on this team. And he understood that my physical abilities, especially my ability in the air, was something that he wanted to cater to, uh, the, the defensive responsibilities. And back then, you could, you could do a lot of things you can't do in the game right now. And so the physical part of the game was much more prevalent and, and I think, important and much more of a, uh, of a tool for defenders. The game's changed, and, and players have had to adapt. And I, I believe that good players, regardless of their era, would, if they put them in another era, would adapt. So I would have adapted to the game today. But back then, the physical part of the game was something that we played up and, and used to our advantage. And, look, we were traveling around. We went through qualifying. We would travel around and play in different places. And so for me, it was my first international exposure, and not just playing international games, obviously at the under-23 level, but, but just traveling and going to these different places, which would become part of my life for many, many years to come. Uh, and the whole lifestyle of, you know, this, this group of guys traveling to different places, playing games, having fun, you know, buses and, um, and 
uh, you know, planes and trains and automobiles and everything else you could possibly imagine. But being that that gang, if you will, that is a team and having so much fun literally traveling around the world, playing the game and representing a country that, that I hold dear and that I have an incredible amount of respect, respect and pride in. And each and every time stepping on that field, not just representing yourself or, or your team, representing your country and this was at the under 23 level and we all had aspirations of possibly doing it at the full level which was uh, obviously the 94 world cup and the possibility of the 92 olympics leading to opportunities for us with the full national team which was then coached by Boran Milutinovic and for many of us we did matriculate and graduate on to the 94 world cup team I mean a, a huge group of myself Mike Lapper Joe Max Moore, uh, you know, Kobe Jones, Brad Friedel, all of these different guys that were part of that Olympic team then graduated on. And Bora was really, really good about recognizing that he didn't care where you were from, he didn't care how much experience you had, but if he saw something in you, and once again, I had one of those champions that Bora said, I like this guy, I can use this guy. And we proceeded for the next two years in 93 and 94 to train down in Mission Viejo to get ready for the 94 World Cup. I remember in Barcelona, actually, you pretty sure you had your guitar there as well, and you were starting to really take off with the music part of it as well. And it felt like Bora and Bill Nuttall and everybody at U.S. Soccer embraced it. I mean, it was part of who you were. I remember you singing national anthems before wearing the USA jersey, Alexi. I mean, and I remember, like, you'd have concerts and we'd promote it at the games. I mean, they really got behind you, didn't they? They were really they were good. They recognized that it was something that I loved to do and something that I needed to have in my life and look uh, I, I don't kick the ball around anymore and certainly not at the level that I that I used to uh, but I still have music in my life and, and, and it was there before soccer and it's been there after soccer and it's something that I hold dear it's something that I take as seriously and I have just as much passion for as, as any type of sport that I ever played uh, and I think people recognize that this was something that came with me it was baggage if you will and either you accepted it or you didn't and I was really fortunate to have both coaches and administrators that recognized that this was not only something that I needed, but something that you could use, uh, that you could promote, that, that set you apart, that made you unique. And my, my teammates also uh, were on board and, and, and dug it. And I never got any pushback from anybody. But I also recognized that I could never let it interfere with my kicking of the ball. And you can be as crazy and as unique and as and have a huge personality and do all of these different things. But if you're not doing it on the field, then you're going to run into problems. And so I always recognize that I, that thankfully I was able to do these things that I thought would help me become a better soccer player. But ultimately when that whistle blew, I knew that I had to bring. You have so many fascinating layers, the music part, the 96 caps, nine goals with the USA scoring against England. The time in Italy was amazing, a great success at Major League Soccer. But I do need to get to why we're having you on as well to talk about college soccer. But before we do it, one of the things I do want to just touch on is, you know, Landon Donovan returned. And I don't think people realize you also retired, took a year plus off and came back. So you've been there, done that as well. What was that like? Well, I took uh, what we called it at the time was a stepping away, and I left for a year, and I actually did a lot of TV, which was good because I kind of got a base early on in my career. I was around uh, 29, 30 years old when I did that, and really what happened was you know, we talked about all these different experiences. Well, you know, I, I lived the power of what a World Cup could do and all of these opportunities on and off the field, and, and what happened was 
that I burned it hard and I burned it at both ends for a number of years. And I, I don't regret it for a second because <laughs> I milked it for all it was worth and had a blast doing it. But it took a toll. And I came to a point where I knew that I needed to step away. And it, it rejuvenated me physically and mentally. I don't, it, it worked for me. I don't necessarily say that it works for anybody else. Uh, and Landon's doing it at a much later time. But I came back, and I don't think there's any coincidence that when I did come back, I actually had my most success from an MLS perspective. And it was just something that I needed to do. And, and, and I missed a year. And keep in mind that I was still uh, potentially involved in the national team at that point. And I knew when I stepped away that the national team was going to go away. And it was important to me to accept that but also recognize that it was worth it to step away to get my mind and body right and, uh, and do some things that I wanted to do. And if I was ever going to be any good as a soccer player in, in, in the future, I needed to take that time away. Fascinating. And now another layer is, in fact, your role as you know one of the leading broadcasters in the country. And you always have an opinion. It's always an articulate opinion. And I say it goes back to the fact that you know your father, Demetrius, who's a professor, became the director of Greece's National Observatory, and your mom was a poet. I mean, you know, great parenting as well. That that certainly helped along the way, didn't it, Alexi? Well, I mean, I think you you saw that. You know, I have always been fascinated by entertainment and performing. I consider myself an entertainer and a performer. And the way you say something is as important as what you say. Uh, the aspect of performing, whether it is getting on a stage and singing a song or getting on a field and playing a game, that interaction that you have with the people that are there, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not. You work very hard, either you're, you're, you're training for a soccer game or you're rehearsing for a show. I looked at it all the same, and I also looked at it as there were going to be opportunities to promote myself. There were going to be opportunities to promote the game, and I, and I never wanted to waste any of those opportunities. And I, I always tell younger players when, when I'm talking to them, look, you're going to get microphones put in front of your face. And first off, don't be scared of that. But second off, recognize the opportunity that you have to promote yourself and to promote your, your team, whatever your team is, and to promote the game. Because I do feel you have a responsibility. And if you let that go by the wayside, you're leaving something on the table. And I, I think that, that we, we should encourage players to recognize that. And it doesn't mean you have to be crazy. And it doesn't mean you certainly have to be me. You have to be yourself, but at least have the recognition in that moment of how beneficial it can be to, to perform and to entertain and to recognize that if you do that, it can help you, it can help the team, and it can ultimately help the sport. And I think I got a lot of that from my parents and constantly asking questions, constantly challenging me to back up some of these opinions that I have. And it's not just good enough to say something outrageous. You have to be able to back it up. And them constantly challenging me on, and not just soccer things, on anything in life that we talked about, um, I was heavily influenced by music and the whole aesthetic of the music, especially in the 80s and the 90s, and the, uh, the promotion of music and the performance aspect of, uh, of music. Not, and I'm just talking about singing the song, but the way that bands branded themselves and the way that artists branded themselves and all that kind of stuff. So that was all going through my head. So the way that I looked, um, the way that I acted, that was, and sometimes people cringe when I say this, but I knew exactly what I was doing. But I was authentic in that this was very comfortable for me. And I was genuine and I was honest, but make no mistake, 
it was a performance and it was a character and one that I loved and one that I used to my advantage consistently. I loved it too. Okay. Well, you mentioned promotion. This is the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. It's geared to promote college soccer at every single level, men and women. You've got a big stage, right, at Fox, and you've got big opinions. You also are deeply involved with U.S. soccer, you know, and a lot of people think you'll be the future president of U.S. soccer. That'll be my last question, so get get ready for that. But I wanted to start the program talking about your path to college soccer, and then I wanted to end getting your take on college soccer. And, you know, probably most importantly, at the Division One level, they're talking about a full-year academic year, and they're also talking about, hey, is college soccer where it needs to be? I believe it still has a very prominent place, and it doesn't have to be all about developing the next pro soccer player, although it's done that tremendously as well. You're proof of that, even back in the, the 90s. Give me your pulpit speech on college soccer today, Alexi Lalas, please. I believe that college soccer has a place. I believe that it is flawed, but but that's nothing new. Everybody understands that it can be improved. And they're, they're working under a system that's, what, at this point, 40, 50 years old. And the not just the game, but the culture has moved past that. And so we also know that this is a, um, you know, this is a, this is a huge this is a huge ship that just saying it needs to change course doesn't make it so, and it takes a lot to make it change course. Thankfully, I think that there is enough support right now where I do believe that changes are going to be made and, and changes that are going to benefit it in this new world that we live in, in this new soccer world. Now, when it comes to the actual collegiate experience, I believe that in our, in our zeal to produce better soccer players, we at times have created a generation that while they may to a certain extent kick the ball better, they are missing out on some of the tools that I believe do make good soccer players. For every Messi who, let's be honest, lives he's he's a completely he's a complete aberration in that he, he lives in this bubble and he is going to go down as one of the greatest players in the world. You have to throw that type of player out. But the reality is that the tools that you have to function as a professional soccer player, go well beyond the actual kicking of the ball. After that 90 minutes is done, you got to find a way and be able to live a life uh, in those other 22 and a half hours. And that comes, I think, from the experiences that you have, the relationships that you have, and in many cases, I think from an American perspective, in that collegiate experience that you have. Because off the field, the lessons that you learn, the things that you go through, the responsibility that you are given, the interaction, uh, you know, when you're, uh, when you're interacting with your, uh, with your classmates, when you're, um, when you're getting your heart broken, when you're getting in trouble, all these different things that go into creating what I like to think are, are, more, are better rounded individuals, I think they can have an impact and can affect uh, how you are successful as a professional soccer player. And I think sometimes we have a generation where those tools are lost. And I at times look and say, you know, for example, let's see, uh, an Alejandro Bedoya. I think that he is a better soccer player for having gone through that path that he went through, which did involve college. And it's not that, that others can't go through a path that doesn't involve soccer and be a good and that doesn't involve college and be a good soccer player. But I do think that that we are throwing out the baby with the bathwater sometimes when we just say, well, college is detrimental to you 
as a soccer player. Being a soccer player is much more than just being able to kick a soccer ball. And what do you think about Sasso Swarovski and all these coaches pushing for a full year, academic year, soccer season? I think it's great because I think it spreads out the games. I think that the amount of games that, I mean, look, this is also coming from someone that hated to train. So I, I, I wanted more games. The problem is, is that all of the games are just kind of squished into a, into a, uh, a fall, winter type of uh, scenario, period. So I, I like the fact that it spreads it out. I like the fact that within that spreading, I think that you're going to be able to get away with having more opportunities to play soccer and to learn about the game because that spreading has occurred and the fact that the games aren't so fast and furious and coming one after another. So I, I, I like that. But, you, you know, just because you say it doesn't make it happen. Uh, there are so many other things that, that have to be dealt with. And I, I, I don't envy them because uh, this is a very, very difficult situation for them to turn around. But if they can, and I think out of self-preservation, they recognize that something needs to be done because the, the, the world is changing, our country is changing, the sport is changing in the way that we go about developing soccer players. And if, if, if collegiate athletics, and in this, in this case collegiate soccer, doesn't recognize it and do the things necessary, it will become a thing of the past and it will become irrelevant. And I, I would hate to see that happen because of the things that we just talked about, because you will not only lose the soccer aspect of it, but you will also lose the ability to give players who maybe don't want to go directly at 17 or 18 and, and try to go into academies or go turn pro that maybe need that college experience. If they're not getting those tools and those lessons that you learn in that college experience, I think it would be a shame. Well said from where I sit, long live college soccer. Okay, I just said it. I don't know um, how you feel about it, but a lot of people do mention your name as a future president of U.S. soccer. Is that something that's on your mind at all, Lexi? I've never heard that before, but uh, if there are those that, that do, uh, that's, that's an incredible – I think that's an incredible uh, uh, incredible thing to say. I, I, I've never thought about it in the, in the sense that I love what I do. I love doing television. I'm 100% committed. I'm a junkie. I love the platform that it gives me to perform and to entertain and do all those things that we that we talked about to write, um, and, I, and I don't want to do anything else. You know, having said that, to be able to guide a uh, a federation and a sport that I love and that I've been such a part of, I mean, that would be a, a tremendous honor. And that's not to say that that I feel that I could do it any better uh, than anybody else, but I, I I don't feel that I would do it any worse than anybody else either. If going mm-hmm. forward, and if if that if the moment came where I felt that that was something that I really wanted to do. And I've said this before because, you know, I've been in the front offices. And if, 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 if I didn't want to do television and something else was calling to me, be it going back in the front office or, or possibly running for president of, uh, of the U.S. Soccer Federation, I think especially when it comes to U.S. Uh, Soccer Federation president, you need to be 100% committed and you need to give body and mind to that. And so I would do everything in my power to make that happen. And part of that would be saying, look, I'm not doing anything else right now because I'm going to put all of my focus <clears throat> and, 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 uh, and attention on this. Because that's what it deserves. That's what our sport deserves. That's what our federation deserves. And that's how change is going to happen. And that's how progress and evolution is going to happen by having as many people that are thoroughly invested and 100% invested in this sport being in leadership positions. 
Finally, Alexi, we hope to have your body and mine in Los Angeles in January for the NSCA convention. We've seen you at the convention over the years. We've also seen you at, at summer seminars. Clearly, you see the value in the NSCAA, right, Alexi? Look, it's a, it's a wonderful meeting of the minds and just a great event. Yeah, you, you see, I see so many people that, you know, I talked about champions and, and people that have supported me in the past. When I, when I go through these conventions, uh, it's so fun to see so many different people from my past and to catch up uh, and to see where, where people are, but also to see how far we've come and the progress. Uh, oftentimes, you know, people will, will say, does it, does, it make you, uh, does it make you sad or are you angry that you didn't have the advantages that, that this generation has? And I say, no, I, I don't. I'm glad that there's a generation that doesn't know about all the stuff that we went through on and off the field, because that to me is progress. The fact that there are kids today that wake up in the United States and uh, are able to be exposed to so much soccer. I mean, the soccer on television in the U.S. is ridiculous. You're able to see games every single day on multiple channels. You're able to go to professional soccer. You have your own professional leagues, multi, uh, uh, multiple leagues, whether it's uh, MLS, NASL, men's, women's. Uh, you, uh, you have coaching that is so far more advanced than it was back when I was coming up. You have resources in terms of the fields that you play on, the stadiums that you go to, and you have a soccer culture that's no longer underground or niche. And to go to a convention like that and to see all of this come together and all these different generations in the context of what soccer is, in this case in 2016, it warms the cockles of my redheaded heart. And it's just a wonderful <laughs> time to, to be there hanging out with people and, and talking about this game that we know and love, but talking about it in the context of the United States, which obviously means so much to me and so many of us. The cockles of his red-headed heart. Alexi, thank you for all you've done for U.S. soccer, and thank you personally from me. I came on, basically I'm the same age as you, as a young guy that might have been tough dealing with these professional athletes. You were incredible. In my pool house, I have a picture of you with Ted Koppel and my wife and John Harks and Wynalda and Tony Miola and Marcelo Balboa. That was incredible. But more importantly to me, and I don't know if you remember doing this, but I had the U.S. World Cup team sign the team poster after the World Cup, right? And you wrote on top to Dean, you kick ass, Alexi Lalas. And uh, that is front and center when you walk into my office right there, Alexi. And that always means so much to me. Well, I'll tell you what, Dean, and I say this as often as I possibly can, because I think it bears repeating. It's that those of us that kick the soccer ball, myself and certainly that generation that you're talking about, we get a tremendous amount of credit for for soccer and the progress of soccer in the U.S. But the reality is that there's so many other people that never kicked the ball, certainly in the way that we did, that deserve as much, if not more, for the work that they did. Men and women that were tireless throughout the the 80s and the 90s, and, and even before that, to be honest with you, that worked so hard for this game. And so whatever success we have today, whatever type of soccer culture we have today, it's off the backs of all of those men and women that have come in before, and not just the people on the field, and certainly not just the people on the field. And so people like you, for all of the work that you have done and continue to do, I say thank you. From all of us that get all this credit because we kicked the ball, I say thank you because there's no way that we would even be close to where we are without the work of people like you uh, and the men and women out there that have worked so hard over the last decades to bring us to where we are. Now, it doesn't mean that we're done, and it doesn't mean that we can't get better. So onward and upward, and uh, let's get back to uh, fighting the good fight. 
All right, well said. Alexi Lalas, the great number 22. Thanks so much for being a part of the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. My pleasure. When you join the National Soccer Coaches Association of America, you join a community who live and breathe the beautiful game just like you do. You join a network of individuals who share many of the same issues, concerns, and questions as you. The NSCAA is dedicated to serving coaches at every level of the game in a number of ways through advocacy, education, and service. Be a part of the coaching community. Learn more and join at NSCAA.com. Welcome back and certainly hope you enjoyed a little extended time with Alexi Lalas, who starred at Rutgers. Rutgers actually entered the Big Ten three years ago with Maryland, who remained your number one team in the country in the D1 men's rankings. The Terps faced John Trask, Wisconsin Badgers, who I think deserve to be ranked on Friday in a game that could determine the Big Ten regular season champion. Notre Dame, who beat Michigan on Tuesday as number two under Bobby Clark, they face Virginia on Friday. Mike Noonan's Clemson Tigers, number three, but that'll change after they lost to Kevin Langan's number 14 UNC Charlotte on Tuesday. Number four Louisville, led by Kenny Lola, is also going to drop after falling at home to number nine Indiana on Tuesday. Of course, the Hoosiers led by the son of the godfather, Jerry Yeagley, talking about Todd Yeagley. Jamie Frank's number five Denver team will climb up. They have not lost a game in well over a year, and they beat Paul Snape's number 11 Butler team this week. Creighton in at number six as Elmar Bolovich's team also beat Butler last week, but they'll drop after losing a heartbreaker in the final minutes to Tom McIntosh and Tulsa this week. Wake Forest and North Carolina are seven and eight. Syracuse is 10. And how about Florida Gulf Coast? They come in at number 12. And now we're pleased to be joined by Bob Butehorn, now in his 10th season as the top man at Florida Gulf Coast, and he has that team rolling. Three goals last night, the highest scoring offense in Division One with 38 goals, and the longest current winning streak in Division One now at nine. Bob, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Dean. Well, here's the deal. In soccer, we love teams that score goals. We love teams that play attractive soccer. You're doing it. Tell us about why your team's having so much success. A, scoring goals. B, winning games. Well, I would love to, I would love to claim all the responsibility of some kind of mad scientist experiment that I'm doing, but I think it's just uh, it's uh, it's the it's the change in formation that we've decided to go with, and also I think just the personality of the team. Um, and and so for me, I'm just trying to put the right guys in the right seats on the bus and uh, and see if I can keep the keep it on the road we're on. So it it is uh, it's a, it's been fun and um, create and and then watching the guys create chances and now kind of finishing them off. But it definitely is enjoyable to watch. Well, let's dive into that. Talk about the formation you're playing because I know coaches will be interested. We we had uh, the unfortunate of, of of not having you know two outside backs we felt really comfortable with so that kind of dictated how I looked at you know over the summer uh, how we wanted to play so my thought was I needed to go with a three back system and and I started to explore options out of that um, and the one I chose to start the season was a three two three two which. Um, Bayern Munich used a little bit, um, and you know there was a little bit of a hybrid of that. With um, uh, I, th- I think it was Juventus that did a little bit. Um, Conte did a little bit. So I I kind of watched a little bit of that and and and, and did enough of the the numbers and and pushing things around to make sure I saw that that we could do it um, with the guys that we had. So we started with that, and now it's a little bit morphed into um, a 3-1-4-2, uh, which is 
um, only because we have a guy that sits as a six who does a very good job of covering a lot of ground. Um, so at, attacking wise, we put we tilt the number, tilt the field towards the other team, and and we try to get we try to get at you a little bit. All right. Well, the Eagles now number twelve in the country. It's the highest national ranking in school history in any sport. And of course, we all remember the Eagles basketball team a few years ago when they were jamming all over everybody. But that that uh, certainly generates a lot of excitement as well. Number twelve in the country, highest ranking ever. How are you feeling about that, Coach? Well, yeah, rankings are, are really nice. They're they're nice to have, but they're they're more of an opinion rather than than the results um, or where things that matter. But I I like that we're getting the recognition for the program we built so that's exciting we had a great crowd on a Tuesday night last night so I know we're drawing some attention and you know for all of us as college coaches it's to grow the sport so if we're we've got the ranking and we've got uh, we've got some excitement I just want to I want to run with it I want to see if we can continue to grow it in this area and and make it a viable sport at the university well we love that you played George Kiefer in USF last night because a few years ago as part of the NSCAA game of the week it was indeed USF against Florida Gulf Coast that game is always a special game right coach yeah George has done a great job with his program and uh, and and they were this year. They they came into this um, the season, I think, feeling really strong about their group. They had everybody basically back, and then they they added some really good pieces to that. And uh, George is, you know, at, ran into like all of us at some point has run into a little bit of a, you know, some injuries and some setbacks early in the year just with the personnel. But he uh, that team last night they were all back healthy and they were very good. And and I think both he and I are trying to get a little bit of a rivalry going because the fans get so into it. We get you know the twitters are bouncing back and forth between the two fan groups. We had a good crowd. They brought some kids. I mean, some kids down. So for us, I I think we enjoy the we enjoy the game. It's an exciting game, but that, now the fans are starting to enjoy it, and that's again, that's that's the goal. Bob, that score was three two, but I got to take you back to September twenty seventh. You're up at Piscataway, your sack field, taking on Danny Donegan's Rutgers <laughs> team, a team that's had a rough year. And lo and behold, seventeen minutes in, the score is Florida Gulf Coast five to nothing. The final score six to five. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Tell us about that game. Yeah, uh, I wish I could too. I was a little bit blurred. <laughs> I felt like I had been just in a twelve-round fight. Um, it it it, uh, it had all of it. It 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 just had the the perfect storm um, to to bring something like that. For whatever reason, I was able to get three guys that hadn't played all year together on the field at the same time, Dylan Sacramento, Arian Sobers of Sioux, and uh, Albert Ruiz, who are all pretty good players in their own right, but when you put them together, they, 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 um, they, can, get some, they can get some goals. And uh, so I, I put them on the field the first time, and sure enough, you know, they got after it, and it happened. But after 20 minutes, you know, Albert went down with an injury, and I think right after that, Dylan came down with an injury, so I had to get them both off. And then uh, Danny's team, you know, scored the, you know, the one to to kind of get it to five one, and then they scored just before halftime, and then scored just after the break. So now you got, uh, you know, the, the proverbial game on, and uh, it became interesting after that. In fact, I think they could have been seven because I was it was a clear penalty at the end of the game. So it was a wild one, but um, and for those fans that stuck around and. To, after it was 5-0, I think they enjoyed, they enjoyed the fireworks afterwards. Talk about your path. You spent time as an assistant coach at Penn, a head coach with the Bonnies at St. Bonaventure, and also was an assistant coach at the University of Maryland before getting this job. How did all of that work prepare you to lead Florida Gulf Coast? 
Well, there's been so many people that I have, I'm very grateful for to kind of, I've mentored, um, under and, uh, and I, and I, and I think that, um, you know, that's been my benefit. You know, it started with, you know, believe it or not, John Ellinger, when I was working as a bartender right after I was out of school as a summer job. And, uh, I ran into John Ellinger at his, at his wedding and, uh, he found out I played and then brought me into a team and he was the one that got me into coaching. So then, you know, that just led from one thing to another. I went to Maryland and worked with Alden Shattuck for, you know, a year and a half. And then I was fortunate enough to stay on with Sash. Um, and those are, you know, just very good people. And uh, and they're still very close friends. And then when I got Bonaventure, Bonaventure, the, the, the friendships that I, you know, built there and are still still lasting and the memories are are some of the best I've had in my career just because they that is an extremely difficult place to uh to 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 kind of put a team together um not only financially but just the location and we were able to do it and do it successfully and the guys that played for me there were very good um we changed the culture there and then going you know, out of it into the business world for a few years, you know, I worked, you know, that was very helpful for me to understand how to run a company. I oversaw about 100 people and uh, was more of an, a, a management role. But then I knew that you know, the passion was back in the game. So I came back in and worked with Rudy Fuller and did my master's with at the University of Pennsylvania in or, organizational dynamics, which was I had some great professors there and, and people that helped me understand kind of how to build something and how businesses run and how management it operates and what's good leadership. And so for in, in my time, when before stepping into this job, you know, you, you call it fate, you call it direction, you call it trajectory or whatever it may be. And when I ended up at, at FTCU, it was the perfect spot for me to literally dick, put my hands in the the dirt and uh, and form something and uh, and that for me has been absolutely exciting um, that I have built something from absolute scratch with all of the the kind of mentor you know, the mentors I've had and the people that have influenced my life. Well, and it wasn't a stretch for you to go to Naples because you went to the University of Tampa. Yeah. You won a national championship at Tampa in 1981. Yeah. Talk about that experience. Well, again, here's here's more influences on my life. I played for Jay Miller, and Tommy Fitzgerald was my assistant coach. Wow. So at that time, you know, those two coaches, I chose that school, and I was a walk-on um, and earned my spot and earned a scholarship. But it was really about, you know, those two guys. I went there to play for Jay Miller and I, to learn the game, and then the guys I played with. So it was a very – at that time, it was a very, very, very good team, um, and the program was – um, the, the kind of style I liked, and it kind of influenced me forever. But um, just in the, even though it was Division Two, we we played a style that was very attractive. We we um, we had some very good teaching, and then we you know had the fortunate <laughs> the fortunate uh, you know environment to play, and the weather was always perfect, so we could train every day and enjoy that. So. Just being able to win a national championship, being under Jay Miller and Tommy Fitz and learning how they did things was, you know, for me, I'm forever thankful. Well, you obviously know the importance of great coaches and talk a little bit about what Joe and Henry and Eduardo bring to your staff. Yeah, uh, I, I have been really fortunate to, to have some really good assistants um, and uh, they are the latest in, in line. I mean, I can right now, my former assistant, Mark Prezant, is the, you know, is the lead scout for Man United for the United States. My other assistant coach, you know, Albert, I mean, uh, Alex Aldaz is at SMU, but I think, you know, he's got some plans to move into, you know, the MLS. Um, you know, Alec Dufty is with, you know, Kansas Sporting KC. Uh, Phil Berger is with Toronto. So these two guys here, well, actually three guys here, um, 
I, I, I'm really fortunate because I learn from each one of them and they come in and, and they give, they offer a different view of things. And Joe is a fantastic um, marketer and promoter of the sport. He's got great influence from the MLS and he did a great job in kind of getting, you know, the fans of the game. He's got great ideas and he's also got a great eye for talent. And uh, Henry, Henry is just the, a pure professional. He just loves the game, lives it, and works hard every day and, and has shown me different ideas and, and different ways to um, kind of massage players into being good players. And then Eduardo is, you know, brings the academic side as well as the, the, uh, the goalkeeper side to my brain. So, you know, it's, it's, really, it's really good that I'm, I'm able to get around these type of people, and they're able to influence me and help my program grow. You dropped some big names. Love that you mentioned that you spent uh, four-plus years with Sasha Soroski, who has Maryland at number one. I just called Maryland uh, on Friday night on the Big Ten Network. They are legit. Very, very good team. And, of course, Sasha Soroski is out front of everything. He was out front of getting more television for college soccer. He was out front of, you know, perhaps the best atmosphere you're going to find for college soccer. Now he's out front as one of the leaders in supporting the new academic year season model. And so are you, Bob. Why? Well, it's because it's the absolute right thing to do. There's no other way to look at it. If you look at for everything from the personal health um, to the mental health to just the physical demands of, of the student-athlete, it is it and and at everything else in this sport today model models this or or or, or, or really moves us towards this model whether it's international whether it's the academy whether it's you know whether any any other any other um, country in the in the world of how they they set up their seasons that's how this sport is is uh, set and and for us not to take these hints and live in kind of this archaic model that we're in now where we squeeze everything into what used to be a, a three-sport, you know, kind of uh, structure. It, it, just, it just makes absolute sense. And, and I think that um, when the NCAA really digs down and looks at it and understands that the money isn't, there's not much different in the, in the, in the, the money that will need to be put into it. It can be done um, by, you know, with the facilities you have. It can be done um, in a way that it benefits the student athletes. When everybody looks at that, it, it's a no-brainer. But again, this is a process. It's inertia. It's it's change, but it's the right change. There's no doubt about it. All right. Well, last question then, as we certainly will continue to follow that progress with Rob Kehoe also playing a, a key role in that. If you score more goals than everybody else, at the end, you can win a national championship. Coach, do you have the team that could do it? Again, we we always all coaches are skeptical, and that's uncharted territory for us. So, you know, whether those are goals for every team, yes, they, I would say you, to out loud, yes, those are always goals for every team. But you know, the, you break through thresholds at different times in the program's you know longevity, and and we're just breaking through them now. So, again, the belief is something you always need to to to, to win something like that. But I think it's. I think it's it's always within the realm of possibility for any team, um, and I and getting back to just the the split season thing and and Sasha's influence and and uh, Rob's influence and those are absolutely been two guys that are kind of pioneers in pushing this this thing through. But the amount of guys underneath the them that are really pushing forward with this this uh, this idea and this proposal is and has to be credit whether it's Marlin whether it's you know um, Stanford whether it's you know looking at uh, Michigan looking at Northwestern all of those guys are pushing the buttons in their own in their own right and it's it's really important that everybody kind of 
does their their little part to make this thing go. But so I don't give you that two two bits there, but it, it's really important. I think you're right, and I've had more coaches tell me all of us are trying to get something done, and we also got to look at you know, hey, how do you tweak Plan A and that type of thing. So it's going to take a collaborative effort. It's I do feel it needs to be you know majority supported, and the student athletes have bought into it. But again, it has to get to where, like right now, the ASUN is, I think, on the forefront of putting this proposal forward as a conference to the NCAA. Once it gets on on the docket, I think then it starts to move. But our conference, I'm very proud to say, is fully behind it. The coaches are behind it. The AD is behind it. We got presidents behind it. So for me, we're not we're not the power player. But it is nice to see at a conference like us that we have looked at the de- the details of the plan and the proposal and have understood what it needs to be um, and, and have accepted it as something that we need to push forward. Bob Budhorn, getting it done in Naples, Florida Gulf Coast, number 12 in the country. Bob, we'll be following your team. Thanks for being with us. Dean, I really appreciate the, what you're doing for college soccer and, and, and keep up the good work. And, again, we're going to keep growing it down here. So, you know, check back in with us and hopefully we'll keep doing it well. I'm going to get down to Naples to see you firsthand, okay? That'd be great. By being a member of the NSCAA, you are a part of the world's largest network of soccer coaches. Here, you can find like-minded people passionate about bettering themselves to help better their players and ultimately to better the game. Continuing our theme of big personalities, I want to thank Alexi Lalas for starting off our program and another big personality now joining us, the head coach of the number one team in the country right now of the West Virginia Mountaineers women's soccer team. Nikki Izzo-Brown joins us. Nikki, thanks for being with us. Hey, Dean, thanks for having me. 21st season as the only coach in Mountaineer women's soccer history. You have built a one-time infant program into one of the nation's elite teams and now number one. What does that mean to you, Nikki? Well, it doesn't mean anything because the season's not ending uh, today. But, uh, you know, it's a huge credit to all the hard work that the ladies are putting forth. And I'm I'm pleased that uh, everyone feels that uh, all our hard work is, you know, recognized as at number one. But the goal is to finish number one at the end of the year. All right, let's talk about how you built this 21 years ago. Talk about that process, how you found West Virginia, how they found you. Well, you know, back uh, when Title IX was really hitting, they were definitely starting programs. Uh, and West Virginia was one of many that was, was starting to, you know, build women's soccer programs. And I was coaching at a Division II level, and uh, they invited me up for an interview. And um, obviously they offered me the position, and uh, the rest is history, right? Well, it's been incredible history. So you came over from West Virginia, Westland, and you've never had a losing season. So right from the get-go, the recruiting was spot on. The coaching is phenomenal. And now you have your team at number one in the country. But when you took over the job, did you know you were going to be here forever? I mean, that's a long time. No, you, you never, you know, you don't really put a timeline on anything. And, you know, I just knew this was a special place and it had special people here. And I, I really believe that... Um, in the right situation that West Virginia University can win a national championship and it's just been a um, you know a special place for me but no I would have never thought uh, coming from Rochester New York that I would be here this long well and obviously Samantha Gracie and Gabriella your three daughters with husband Joe must be loving it as well I mean it's home now right 
Yeah, you know, they, they definitely, um, you know, feel that West Virginia is their home and, and they just embrace everything about it and have just been just in a wonderful environment for Joe and I to raise our three girls. Now, we've been able to see your team up close as part of the NSCA Game of the Week over the years. In fact, it's funny, as I look at your schedule with Tom Stone, another big personality coming into town that game He's on ESPN. you got a bigger personality than me, Dean. Come on now, let's not, let's not lie. <laughs> You're both a lot of fun to watch on the sideline, though, I can tell you that is so much passion and energy and you can tell that you connect with the kids and you know you want what's best for the kids but yeah two big personalities for sure Tom Stone you know by the way Tom Stone was my first ever broadcast partner 20 years ago when I broke into the business with the Colorado Rapids so it's kind of awesome. it's kind of funny but you know we were there a few years ago as part of the NSCA game of the week and your game now on on ESPNU and you know as you look at your remaining schedule with Texas Tech and Texas and a couple other you know formidable Big 12 teams it won't be easy down the stretch will it coach no, no. There's so much parity in the Big 12 right now, and, and anything can happen on any given day. And it's you know one of the toughest conferences in the country. So we are uh, you know getting ready mentally and physically for the battle on Friday night at six. All right, Kadisha Buchanan, one of two players that are on the Mac Herman Award list. Of course, we saw her in the Women's World Cup. Continue to see her star for Canada. How good is she? What makes her so special, Coach? You know, uh, Keisha's is definitely a student of the game. She has a, a real understanding in soccer Q, IQ, rather, uh, you know, for what's kind of happening before it happens. And, and she's just got a really good feel for the game. She was a striker growing up, so she really knows what that mentality is like. So she, she can kind of understand the feel of that. But then being a center back, you know, closing things down so quickly, you know, able to organize the confidence for, in her 1v1 one defending, but um, you know she's super quick, super special, and always learning. Always wants to watch film. Always wants to get better, and, and she knows that uh, the sky's the limit in her potential. Well, Kadisha and Ashley Lawrence, both part of that Canadian team, and we've had some big-time coaches on this program here, started about six or seven weeks ago, and every one of them talk about how the college game has helped the international game, and most of them mention Canada. And who knows better about Canada than you, because long before Miss Buchanan and Miss Lawrence arrived, you have had a pipeline to Canada. Talk about that. Yeah, it's it's been going on for many, many years. A lot of people think uh, Keish and Ashley have been our first, but uh, we've had a strong tradition of Canadian players. It, it made a whole lot of sense with us being five and a half hours uh, from the Toronto area. And, you know, families can come see their daughters play. And I had a great connection with one of their, you know, like let's just say regional coaches up there in their Olympic training center. So it, it's just really worked out. And um, it, it's, it's been awesome because, the, the first Canadians had such a great experience and, and then they just keep telling the next and then the next and then the next. So it's it's been a wonderful opportunity for, for myself and uh, West Virginia. Well, speaking of national teams, Nikki, you've had several years of experience with the U.S. Women's National Team program, including serving as an assistant at the team's 2012 training camp with the U.S. under-18, under-20, and U-23 squads. So what is working with U.S. soccer meant to you as well, Nikki? Well, I've been so fortunate. It's, you know, every time I go in, I, I get to work with some of the best coaches in, in the, if not the world, if in, in our country. And it's a great opportunity for me to just try to make the U.S. soccer a little 
bit better and constantly learning, but uh, doing whatever I can to make, you know, our country better and, and get to work with such a high level coaching staff, but also players. So it's, it's a great opportunity for me. And I hope that, uh, you know, I can help in any way to uh, make sure that we become and still keep that number one uh, team in the world. All right, 20 years, now your 21st season, no losing records. We already talked about that. For people that maybe don't always get to see West Virginia because North Carolina or Stanford is getting the spotlight, now they will because you're number one team in the country. You're on ESPNU. You've been on national television before as well. But how do you describe West Virginia soccer? We're going to build out of the back. We're going to possess the ball. Uh, when we get into the final third, we want to be quick. We want to be dynamic. Uh, we we believe that we have a lot of versatility. If you look at who's scoring, not one player scoring more than any other player. So I, I think we have a lot of parity in our scoring and versatility. But, um, you know, I think we have a very strong mentality and mental toughness about us, but uh, also put the ball on the ground and play. And how do you describe the atmosphere there? I've called a couple games there even in some horrendous weather and the fans are fantastic you've built a great fan base there Nikki it's it's incredible uh the fan support that we've gotten over the years let alone this past season it's it's a special place I I tell people that all the time that the fans and the people of West Virginia just make it so special and they they appreciate what the girls are doing and they come out they support them I'm uh, last Sunday when we were home I mean, the girls were signing autographs. There had to be over 200 youth players just there, and the girls were signing for at least 45 minutes to an hour. So it's just amazing what role models uh, the players are, but more importantly, how the fans come out and support the team. And what about the support of the athletic department? Of course, uh, Oliver Luck was there for some time as well, but talk about your support of your athletic department. Yeah, West Virginia uh, Athletics and West Virginia University, you know, are constantly creating and trying to get better. If it's not for the education purposes, it's definitely the facilities. It's to win national championships. Right now, our rifle team's number one. Our football team's in the top 20. And, you know, obviously, we're number one. So it's been great support. And, you know, we're always striving for excellence and our standard of excellence. So it's always important to, to keep achieving here. All right, Nikki, you're number one now you know how difficult it is to win a national championship, particularly in the women's game where the parity is just unbelievable. There's so many great teams. But if you do these two or three things, you could win a national championship. What are they, Coach? Get better every day, every opportunity. You know, we're together. Uh, have have the grit and mentality um, to just have this iron will about us and then to stay healthy. Well, that's well said. We mentioned that uh, we had Alexi Lalas to start the program. What do you remember about Alexi Lalas's days? Anything? Oh, he just played so free, and he just uh, had a uniqueness about himself. And um, as, as wild and unique as he was, he still got the job done and, and played so well in his role. He was, he was fun to watch. The 2017 NSCAA Convention will be unlike any before. Taking over the downtown Los Angeles Convention Center January 11th through 15th. Network with over 11,000 peers at one of the education sessions, the extensive exhibit hall, or one of many social functions, including the college coaches reception and the All-American Luncheon. With more space and unique experiences, you won't want to miss out on the largest gathering of soccer coaches and administrators in the world. Register today at NSCAA.com. 
Time now to talk D3 soccer, and we start with the women, where Alice Ann Wilbur has William Smith still undefeated at 12-0 and still number one. We loved our visit with her a couple weeks ago. Williams College and Trinity University of Texas are at 2-3, and three respectively. And a big shout-out to Arcadia University, led by Rick Brownell. His team, the Knights, are 13-0, and they come in at number six. Moving now to the Division Three men's side, Trinity of Texas, led by Paul McGinley, is still number one with a perfect 13-0 record. Last week's guest, Mike Babs, has University of Chicago at 12-0 at number two. Rowan, led by Scott Baker, is 11-0-1 at number three. Coming in at number four is UMass Boston, led by Jake Beverlin. They are also 11-0-1. And Ohio Northern, from around where I grew up, Brett Ridenauer, has Ohio Northern at number five, 11-0-2. And still hanging in the top 25 is Calvin College at 10-2-0 and fresh off an impressive dismantling of Hope College. The Knights, located in beautiful Grand Rapids, Michigan, a gem of a city, by the way, are led by Ryan Souders, now in his fifth year as the men's soccer coach at Calvin College, number 25 in the country. A native of Wheaton, Illinois, Souders is a 2003 Wheaton Academy graduate and a 2007 graduate of Wheaton College. Through 13 games this year, Souders has produced a one-loss record over those 13 games and in its five years, 83-14-6. And that includes four MIAA regular season crowns, three MIAA tournament titles, and three trips to the NCAA Division III tournament. Now, last year, Souders led Calvin to its first 20-win campaign as the Knights captured the MIAA regular season crown with a 14-0-0 conference record. They then won the conference tournament as well, and he helped lead the Knights to the third-ever NCAA semifinals in school history. On the playing side, Souders was a four-year member of the Wheaton College men's soccer team and was the starting goalkeeper on the squad that reached the 2006 Division III NCAA Finals. Souders served as an assistant men's soccer coach both at Gordon College in Massachusetts and at his alma mater, Wheaton. He was most recently, before taking this job, spent two years as an assistant at Division I Davidson College in Davidson, North Carolina. We welcome him now. Ryan, thanks for being with us. Dean, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. We talked last night. We weren't sure where you are going to come in. Number 25, you're still in the top 25, Coach. You'll, will you take it? Absolutely. Always good to, to be in there. There's a lot of a lot of great Division three teams, so we're happy to be in there. All right. Well, I love your story because the way I understand it, you went to Wheaton as a baseball player. You weren't even necessarily thinking about soccer, and then you become the starting goalkeeper, leading your team all the way to the finals, three big saves and a shootout as well. How did that happen, Ryan? Honestly, I think that's a God thing, to, to be honest with you. Uh, I went to Wheaton for a number of reasons. The education, obviously the faith component, but certainly to play baseball. Um, I, I don't think I could have dreamed of playing soccer at Wheaton. You know, I grew up in the area, and those Wheaton teams in the late 90s that I got to watch with the Brown brothers and Robbie Mao and Chris Allen, I, I could never dream I would have played for them. Um, and so I ended up going to Wheaton to play baseball. Uh, had some some really interesting things happened. One of the goalkeepers, unfortunately, who's become a good friend, uh, got injured in the preseason, and because I was on campus for freshman orientation, had the chance to just be on the squad. I certainly wasn't starting by any means as a freshman, but um, that's a much shorter version of the story. Kind of went for baseball and, and came out soccer on the other side. Did you play any baseball at all then, Ryan, or did you go straight soccer? I did. So I played my freshman year, um, and, and it wasn't really the experience that uh, I had been expecting and, and really had fallen in love with not just soccer, but Wheaton soccer, um, and, and made some really great relationships and, and friends there and, and stuck with that for the remainder of my four years uh, at Wheaton. 
Well, digging a little deeper, though, like how did you find out the goalkeeper got hurt and the spot was available? Sure. So my high school, uh, Wheaton Academy, tends to be a feeder for Wheaton College in general. And a couple of my former high school teammates um, were playing on the soccer team. They were significantly more talented than I was. Um, and, and so this one individual had gotten hurt, and you know, legendary Coach Bean said, truly, does anybody know of a goalkeeper? Because you know, recruiting had kind of gone out the window at that point uh, that the season had started, and they just needed a body. And a couple of my friends had said, well, you know, we know this kid that played on our high school team. Uh, he's coming here to play baseball, but maybe he would be interested. And so, again, some fortuitous timing and an opportunity from Coach Bean. One thing leads to another, and uh, you and I are here talking today. How long did it take for you to earn that starting role, Ryan? Uh, two years. So I, I didn't really even take myself that seriously. I don't think Coach Bean did either the first year, just kind of a body. Um, and, and I still at that point really saw myself as more of a baseball player. Um, but again, kind of fell in love with that community, fell in love with the game, kind of learned soccer very seriously for the first time under uh, Coach Jake DeClute, who's actually a, a great friend and now the men's coach at Wheaton. Um, and, and over the next two years, really put in a lot of work, uh, got more fit, got more technical training, um, you know, got a couple of starts and kind of some spot starts here and there sophomore year, um, and then really got more of an opportunity as a junior and then fully took it over as a senior. Okay, but you obviously were good because you ended up even playing a little bit professionally, I think, in Cleveland and Charlotte. Talk about that next step. Yeah, I think, uh, to be honest, Dean, that was really more a, a war of attrition. I just It was something I really wanted, and I was willing to, to do whatever it take or took to get opportunities. Uh, and same thing, I had some clubs that were willing to give me some chances. You know, I don't know that any of those clubs would uh, maybe be flying the Ryan Souders banner of their club's pro history, uh, but they gave me opportunities, and I think when I was given those opportunities, um, I won't say that I really, really impressed anyone, but I was resilient. Um, I was a guy who wasn't going to ask for much or complain uh, and just show up and work every day. And so I think that really created those opportunities more than than anything else in terms of my playing ability, to, to be honest. Okay, well, obviously it took you to Charlotte, and then you're with Davidson, where you were an assistant coach as well for a couple years on a team that uh, had some big wins. I think you were there when you beat UNC Chapel Hill. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I was at uh, UNC for two years. So my, my best friend, Greg Dalby, uh, who's currently actually back at Davidson, he was a teammate uh, with the Charlotte Eagles, and, and he was going to go be an assistant at Davidson. said, hey, you know, there's another assistant opening. We'd love to have you. Uh, and I think that's where this idea of becoming a vocational coach really took hold. Um, getting the chance to work under Coach Matt Spear and um, Associate Head Coach Kevin O'Brien taught me a ton. Uh, got me to really think about coaching uh, as a vocation and not just really playing soccer or you know loving soccer. Uh, and we had, I think, just a great time. I think it showed me that we could be successful, um, we could take the work seriously, and it could be a lot of fun. Um, obviously, the highlight of that was when we beat Chapel Hill. Uh, I, th I think it's fair to say they were on the ball most of the game, uh, but <laughs> Our goalkeeper stood on his head, and I, you know I'll probably never forget it. Jake Cater, um, one of our midfielders, hit an absolute bomb with about eight minutes to go, and the upset bid was on, and, and we can say we beat the national champs that year. I remember now when we did the Fox Soccer Game of the Week, you were actually on the bench with Davidson for a game against Ralph Paulson and Wofford. Is that right? What do you remember about that game? 
That's correct. Uh, I, I remember thinking it was a big deal. You know, I think you think game of the week. Uh, you think Dean's coming in to do your game. It's, you know, it's a North Carolina Duke game. It's a, you know, big time, you know, UConn game or Notre Dame, Maryland. Uh, and so I think for kind of that mid-major little guy to, to do that, I remember it was a big deal. Um, a lot of fans in the crowd. Uh, I do have to throw in there, I, I believe we got the 3 nothing win, which was pretty exciting. But, man, it was really awesome to be a part of that. And uh, good to see some recognition. Um, you know, at, at the non maybe top ten in the country level, which is just super exciting for us as a program and, and really great opportunity. Well, as you take a look at your path, and even as you said, you know, God led you to the goalkeeping job. I mean, you think about Wheaton College, even Calvin College, then you hear Cleveland City Stars, Charlotte Eagles, all of those organizations and universities are geared around a, a faith-based initiative, right? Tell us more about that. Yeah. I think that that has been um, a constant and a consistent through um, any of my my life, but especially my sport involvement. Uh, I think what makes a lot of those opportunities unique are the relationships. Um, We're fortunate to have good soccer, and I think you don't want it to be at the expense of good soccer. But I look back, and I think the relationships, the ultimate goal, um, you know, we talk about that here at Calvin, is we want to become uh, good men good husbands, good fathers, good employees. Um, that That's the goal. And, and we think we can win some games doing it, but I think we want to keep that in proper perspective. And I think institutionally we do that pretty well here at Calvin College, and I think it's an exceptional goal, uh, particularly at the Division three level. All right, so talk about that call. You're in Davidson. You get the call from Calvin College. What did you know about the school? I'm assuming a lot, perhaps, since uh, your time at Wheaton. And how long did it take you to say, yeah, I'm going to go be the head coach at Calvin? Yeah, so uh, I, I applied for the job. I, I knew the school well. Um, we had played them three of my four years at Wheaton, and I don't tell a whole lot of people this, so now I'm probably getting her in trouble, but my mother is actually a Hope College grad, uh, and there's a really big rivalry, Hope Calvin, so I'm, I was well-versed, um, you know, I guess as well as you could be without being a part of the community with Calvin College. And so uh, applied and saw the opportunity again, to be a part of a faith-based institution, um, a team that had a lot of success on the field. And uh, when Jim Timmer, our AD, gave me a call offering me the position, um, somehow I was able to get myself together to tell him I needed a day to think about it. But the truth of the matter is I, I could have told him on the phone right there I'd be coming up as soon as I could. Yeah, well, so Grand Rapids, Michigan, I've been there a few times. It is a true gem of a city. You heard me talk about that in your intro. I mean, it's a fantastic place, great community. I love it. It's unbelievable. I don't know if it's uh, you'd classify it as a small, big town or a big, small town. Um, it's got just about everything you'd want. You know, we're just coming off of celebrating Art Prize in downtown Grand Rapids. It's actually the world's largest visual art competition. You know, you'd think New York or L.A. or Tokyo or something, and here it is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So as far as doing things, but also feeling like you're not overwhelmed like a New York City or Chicago, something like that, it really is a great place. Along that sort of spiritual run, you also met uh, the son of Rob Kehoe. Rob Kehoe is a key part of the NSCAA, and that's a friendship that uh, still going strong, right? Absolutely. Rob's one of my dear friends. I'll never forget my first interaction with Rob at Wheaton, actually. Uh, I walked in halfway through their preseason. Uh, Rob was a senior, and he looked at me, uh, and he said, hey, who's the man? And naturally, as a freshman, I was terrified. I looked at him shaking and said, you're the man. <laughs> and, and Rob said, well, yeah, obviously, but after that. And then I looked at him and I said, uh, I'm the man? With a question mark. 
and and that was it. And Rob and I became fast friends. You know, Rob um, is is incredibly bright. He's a he's a great orator, great writer. And Rob loves all sports. And and he and I have bonded um, over sports. And and now that he's been writing for the NSCAA and doing some work for them, we've remained close. Um, what is more, having having Rob. Uh, senior's dad working with the NSCAA has has kept me plugged in and kept me in soccer and I think that family in particular has been part of this you know winding story of myself being involved in the game especially at the college level which has been really awesome. Now you mentioned your family your mom going to Hope are they able to come to a lot of your games how connected are your family now in Calvin? Yeah, very close. So it, it's amazing how quickly someone can change orange and blue for maroon, maroon and gold. Um, so my parents are incredibly supportive. We're very close. Um, all of my immediate family is, is in Chicago, um, and so they're able to uh, to come up for a good amount of games. Um, my in-laws live here in Grand Rapids, so they're able to come to a good amount of games, and they're able to shelf some of their pride because they had twin daughters that played at uh, Wheaton College and Messiah College. So my wife is a Messiah alum, but uh, they, they support the nights as well which is pretty cool did your wife play at messiah that's a big time program she did uh i've got to go home every night to a wife who went to four final fours and won uh, two national championships wow yeah messiah is a powerhouse women and men wow so you certainly well you get it then i mean coming from davidson after spending time at wheaton talk about how d3 compares to d1 if you can you know i think this is where you're going to probably get some of my Napoleon complex. Um, I, I think there are teams and players at the Division Three level that absolutely um, could be competitive at the at the Division One level. I think sometimes people think it's mutually exclusive. You know, you go to D three for academics or faith fit or whatever, and so it means lesser soccer. Um, you know, Messiah College is is has won 10 national championships and they're given division one teams a good run for their money in spring games. Uh, I'm not saying division three teams are, are, you know, winning division one national championships or top 10 or top 25 teams. But I, I do think there are, are young men and women who are looking for more than just soccer. And, and again, I'm not saying that's all division one either, but I, I think it's closer than we'd think, uh, or, you know, that other people might think. And so, um, I've, I've had the chance to work with some great players, you know, uh, here at Calvin, we've been able to produce a couple players at the pro ranks. Um, you know, Marshall Hollinsworth from Wheaton last year is playing for the Columbus crew. Kai Casagurum back at Messiah days play with the fire. So, you know, it may not be every kid, but I think again, that Napoleon complex comes in saying, Hey, you know, we've got some good soccer too. Well, you had great soccer last year, making it to the semifinals, sitting at number 25 right now. Reflect on last year. You were so close. And then talk about what it might take for this team to get back there. Yeah, that's the nature of soccer. You know, I've told a couple of people that do I think we absolutely could have won a national championship last year? Uh, no doubt in my mind. I think I think we had all the pieces. At the same time, Dean, we also could have lost two weeks earlier. You know, all of our tournament wins were one goal wins, and so last year was a lot of fun. Um, you know, we didn't we didn't concede too often last year, which I think was part of our success. And so certainly a fun ride. Won't won't forget that that run or that group of young men anytime soon. And as far as this year, I think anything's possible. You know, we've got a core of returners that are really committed, um, that have, have had a lot of success here at Calvin and, and who want to see a run like that um, all the way out to Virginia happen again. And I think the reality is that that's certainly possible. I think 
in soccer, you can get hot, you can make those runs. Uh, the the Bill Walton in me would say, you know, we got to score some goals and we got to not give up many goals to give ourselves uh, a real chance at that. And, and there's certainly a lot of good teams nationally, and there's a lot of really good teams regionally. You know, you talk about Mike Bapps, uh talking with you guys last week. U Chicago is on an incredible roll, and, and they're a really good team uh, just in our region alone. Love your energy, and obviously we talked about how much you love Grand Rapids, but coming from Davidson for a couple years, do you have D1 aspirations? Do you have professional soccer aspirations? Where do you want to be five, ten years from now, Coach? You know, Dean, I couldn't have scripted where I am now as a coach. Uh, I think that's been the Lord's plan all along. I don't know what he has planned uh, five to ten years from now, but I, I love it here at Calvin College. I get to work with some great young men. I've got some great colleagues. I've got family in the area, not too far, and, and I think we have the chance to do something really special soccer-wise here as well. So I don't know what the Lord has planned, but, but man, I, I don't envision love in any situation or any opportunity more than we do Calvin College. So uh, right now I see myself as a night for life, and it's really just been a great opportunity for me to be here. We definitely need to recognize who that goalkeeper was that got injured that allowed you to step in. What's his name? Yeah, Dave Terhune. Dave has uh, become a good friend, and Dave's doing well. He actually uh, operates a couple of Chick-fil-A's in the Chicagoland area, so if you're in that area, go out and support Dave and uh, Chick-fil-A. Um, I owe a lot of, or if not all of, my coaching vocational career to Dave, and he's become a good friend, so I'm really appreciative, uh, appreciative to Dave. Boy, Rob Kehoe said you're a big-time personality. Today's show features big personalities. Nikki Izzo-Brown at West Virginia, the first time they've ever been number one at the Division One level. Alexi Lalas on the program today talking about his time at Rutgers and being recruited to play hockey and, and soccer. I think you said you were in fourth grade when Alexi Lalas was in the 94 World Cup. What do you remember about Alexi? I remember uh, big hair, big goatee, and what are now sweet retro denim uh, Adidas kits. I love those things. <laughs> Ryan Souders, I'll tell you what, man, you could also be a broadcaster. You're fantastic. Thanks for being with us on the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. Dean, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The NSCAA is 75 years strong and continues to provide quality service and benefits to soccer coaches. Whether you're a youth, high school, college, or professional coach, the NSCAA works to be a voice for you. Speaking of voice, once again, here's Dean Linke. The undefeated Western Washington University women's soccer team is the new number one team in the nation in the National Soccer Coaches Association of America NCAA Division II National Poll released this week. The Vikings are undefeated at 11-0-1 overall and sit atop the league standings at 6-0-0 in the Great Northwest Athletic Conference. WWU has a current 10-game winning streak and recently tied a GNAC record with its 22nd Consecutive home victory at Harrington Field. Western's dominating season so far features victories over number six UC San Diego, currently ranked number nine, and number ten Bridgeport, currently ranked number seven, and a tie against number twenty-four Sonoma State, currently ranked number nineteen. Western opened the season number three in the NSCAA preseason poll after finishing the 2015 season number three with its second national semifinal appearance in the last three seasons since the start of the 2012 season, WWU has made four appearances in the NCAA Division II tournament and combined for an 87-9-7 record, and that was all done under the 14-year top man of WWU, Travis Cannell, and Travis joins me now. Travis, that's a lot of winning. What do you say, my man? 
Yeah, we're we're enjoying this current streak we're on, and and we want to keep it going. Well, you're probably going to be like everybody else that's on this show. The number one ranking doesn't mean that much to us right now, but I got to ask you anyway. What are the what are the teams saying about it, Coach? I mean, I'd, I'd lie if we didn't say that there's quite a buzz in the locker room and. And uh, all the players are really excited about it. Alums are excited about it. Uh, I mean, at the same time, we know that there's still a lot of games to be played. But uh, but also, it's it's it is a benchmark to reach this point. And uh, and so we're going to soak it in a little bit and enjoy it. And uh, as we move on to our next matches, Travis, tell us about your little slice of heaven out there in Washington, Western Washington. Where are you located, and what makes your school so special? Western Washington University is in Bellingham, and we are uh, right on the water here. Bellingham Bay opens up into Puget Sound. Literally, you can see the the ocean from the office, so it's a, it's a special place in that regard. Uh, we're about an hour and a half from Seattle and about an hour and a half south of Vancouver, B.C., so right up in the corner of the United States. All right, 14th year now leading the women's soccer program. You actually led the men's team for 14 years as well. So during a lot of your time, you were doing both, I believe. Talk about uh, what that was like. It was busy. <laughs> it was really busy. Uh, I mean, we're, I'm blessed to have a, have a fantastic job. I get to work with these college-age kids who are experiencing all this new parts of their lives for the first time, and, and so I wouldn't change a thing, but... Uh, but uh, the, the the college, the university, really has helped move both our men's and women's soccer program forward in the last few years, splitting the programs up, and and both teams have enjoyed some success since then. All right. Well, you played at Seattle Pacific, got your bachelor's degree there in 1995. What a time to be playing soccer, the 94 World Cup held in this country. But you played for the legendary Cliff McGrath. Now, Cliff McGrath – I'll tell you what, that legendary gets an extra special focus when you think about what he's done for the NSCAA. He's just one of the all-time good guys, one of the all-time funny men as well. What was it like playing under him, and have you kept in touch with Cliff? Talk about your relationship with him. Yeah, Cliff is, has been a, obviously, he's been a huge part in my soccer career as a player and a coach. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my time in Seattle Pacific and playing under Cliff. First of all, I enjoyed it. He made soccer fun, and even the the competitive grind that this, that college soccer can be, we enjoyed it. It was exciting, and and more than anything, he he taught you how to be a good person and to to just expect good things. I mean, we never went out thinking we were going to lose. We never, uh, you know, had doubts about that. We we're fully uh, planning to win the match, and and uh, uh, Cliff's been great all through my coaching career. First, we actually coached against each other right right after I graduated, but uh, but but even during that, he's always uh, has the highest character, and and I've learned so much from him as a coach and as a man. I'm sure he tipped your direction, tipped you in the direction that is of the NSCAA at some point, right? Uh, I mean, it's been such an important organization to him. Oh no, he definitely he's uh he's been a big part of it and uh and always speaks highly of it and and you can just see I mean he he is a guy who will step forward in 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 any area that's needed and and the NSC is like that too it helps coaches in so many different ways and and players and and it's just a huge part of the game at every level here in the United States. 
perhaps more important than Cliff during your time at Seattle Pacific, your wife, who was a four-time All-American gymnast, I'm assuming you met there as well. We did. Like I said, it was a special place for us. Georgianne is is uh, is 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 my wife, and she's fantastic and helps so much with our players. She she teaches at at, at Western Washington, and so. Uh, we're, we're leading a very blessed life up here. Coach, I mentioned that you graduated from Seattle Pacific in 1995. Of course, the World Cup was held in this country in 1994. Our first guest today, Alexi Lalas, talking about his time at Rutgers playing both ice hockey and soccer and how college prepared him for the next level, the Olympic team, and then the World Cup. What do you remember about number 22 with the USA? It was pretty exciting. I was I was at those games in the Rose Bowl and the Stanford and at Stanford, and uh, I was a big fan, still am. And and then going to Italy and playing there for in his career was just unbelievable for the United States. And so uh, he's paved the way for a lot of soccer in our country. Yeah, you got to love. I think as you think about him and so many others now, you know Eric Winalda and Brad Frito and Kobe Jones and. You know, John Harks coaching at Cincinnati. And, I mean, you think about what that World Cup has meant for soccer in the next level with jobs in, you know, the front office or in broadcasting or coaching. It really did kind of open up new doors, don't you think? I mean, just think of what – I mean, you're right. You you just laid out numerous ways that our, that soccer has just kind of exploded in our in our country uh, over the last 25 years. And, uh, and that was definitely one of the catalysts because it opened so many – people's eyes to what the sport really is all about and uh and it really hasn't looked back well finally you know you live out in the pacific northwest probably not a better part of the country as far as their support for soccer the seattle sounders and portland timbers it blows your mind have you gone to some sounders games and what's it been like of course it's fantastic uh there's nothing i mean as a player and as a coach you know, it's my profession but there's nothing just like being a fan and being in a packed stadium, getting caught up in the momentum and the excitement of of a sport that brings people together like that. So we do try to get to as many Sounders games as we can. There's a big game tonight, actually, uh, against Houston. And uh, uh, I'm not going to make this one, but, uh, but we'll definitely be cheering them on. And, and it is exciting. We enjoy it. Well, Coach, speaking of cheering them on, we'll be cheering on the Vikings and hoping you get it done now in your 14th season leading the women's team, 14 years as well with the men's team before leaving that job a few years ago. Number one team in the country, Coach. Hopefully you're number one at the end. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. By being a member of the NSCAA, you are a part of the world's largest network of soccer coaches. Here, you can find like-minded people passionate about bettering themselves to help better their players and ultimately to better the game. Welcome back to the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. And just like every week, we spend time at every level, including junior college, and time now to pop in on the men's scene. And we're pleased to be joined by the head coach of Parkland College in Champaign, Illinois, Mark Sikora. He's got the Cobras undefeated and top five right now. Thanks for being on the program, Coach. Sure, my pleasure. Your 10th season at the helm of the Cobras, coming off a 13-4 and season a year ago, undefeated. Tell us what's making this team so special this year, Coach. You know, at our level, the two-year kind of cycle, but, um, you know, the guys from our freshman class last year grew really, really quickly during the season and then um, you know, certainly came in, I think, inspired and, and really prepared themselves over the summer and uh, so they were ready to hit the ground running, and, and you know, they've taken their 
responsibilities as a returning player very seriously. Um, and then it's just a matter of, you know, really, really luck when it comes to bringing then the next guys in and, and hopefully early on that you can, you can fuse them together and, and just kind of roll the dice and see what happens. So, um, we've been really fortunate this year that, that both things have happened and, um, you know, we started, uh, really well and, you know, we just kind of keep looking to build on that pretty much every day. Do you, does your team look at the rankings at all? Do you pay attention to that right now, or does it not mean anything, Coach? <laughs> well, you know, you know how Coach speak is. You know, rankings don't mean anything, yada yada yada. But I mean, these these guys, especially with social media, it's it's you can't stay away from it. So um, I had to, you know, kind of change my mind on that really in the middle of the season. And it's like it is what it is, and you know, it's great because I think um, you know outside people are, are looking in and, and there's a little bit of respect for our program when we're just in a really small part of the world. But, um, so, you know, there's a while like, you know, don't talk about it, but even if, if I do or don't, they're going to notice it anyway. Um, so at this point we, we mention it for sure. And they know when they come out and, um, like anybody, they want to see what movement happened over the week. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily change, uh, really, what our overall goals are, on the, you know, on a daily and uh, weekly basis. Well, you got your BA degree from Illinois State, but then your master's from the University of Illinois, right there in Champaign, Urbana. I think you live in Urbana now. Parkland is in Champaign. So, what's that like to be coaching a soccer team? And I know you're still with Centennial as well, high school, where you had a great career, and you're, you're, I think you're teaching over there as well. Are you coaching at Centennial too? No, I, uh, I I coached at Centennial on the boys' side for ten years, and then I did kind of double duty like a lot of high school coaches do for about six years on the on the girls' side. Um, yeah, and so I mean, this has been my my community. I, I attended Centennial High School, so there's a lot of interesting aspects to that. And as you said, I'm in my twentieth year of, of teaching um, history. Um, so it's, you know, this is, it's been really special to be able to, to be a part of, uh, the soccer community for, for so long, not only as a player, but now as a, as a coach. Um, so it's, it's been good. It's been, you know, I'm trying to build, uh, trying to build soccer up in, in the Champaign-Urbana. It's kind of a twin cities, uh, situation. And, um, you know, every day is a challenge for that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's been great. Well, one of the, uh, things we talked about before we came on the air of course janet rayfield is an nscaa honor award winner so she's near and dear to the nscaa near and dear to anybody that knows anything about college soccer men or women and you said you do Definitely. run into her every once in a while what has she meant to you mm-hmm. i like the fact that you know not only my relationship with janet but also her assistant uh jeff that i've known for a couple of years i i think our mission is is pretty much the same even though we're at we're at different levels of, of college soccer and that's you know, you want to build from inside out. Um, we, we both recognize that it's it's great that you can bring in players and have success, but if you you know if you're looking out into the stands and, and you're not seeing the local community and you're not inspiring that next generation of kids in your community, then I think there's something lacking there. So we talk, uh, you know, about how do we how do we do that? How do we uh, create a buzz and and how can we support you know the youth levels uh, around? And you know, I think. Obviously, we, we, we want to do what we can do with our teams and, and win championships, but you know, I think both of us really pride the fact that, you know, you can look back 15, 20 years and say, you know, that the community is better and, and thriving than it was in when we started. Um, so, 
and then you know in the summers both of our both of our student athletes are around and you know I, I like to have a connection between all the college players in town if possible so um, just again continuing building connections and networks and, and soccer is a, is a great way to do it. Well, you mentioned Janet's assistant. How about your assistant, Tim Ward? MLS fans will recognize his name. He played eight <laughs> yeah. seasons in Major League Soccer. How'd you get Tim to join you? Well, that's uh, that's that's a funny story. Um, in a lot of communities, it's it's really difficult to find somebody who who not only is a who knows the game, but also is a, is a good coach and and mentor to the kids. Um, had a great assistant last year uh, and the last three years, but he kind of had to move on with life. Um, but so I was, you know, we, like anybody else, we opened up the position and, you know, resumes kind of kept flowing in and flowing in. And I looked at the, um, I looked at the address of, of this guy, Tim, and, and I said, well, the name sounds familiar. And then I, the address, he lives like two blocks from me. Um, and as luck would have it, he was in, uh, Urbana and has been for a couple of months. Um, life circumstances kind of brought him here. So, yeah, and then once I saw the resume again and looked into it, I kind of had to pinch myself, rub my eyes a few times to make sure this was legit. Um, but, yeah, Tim's been uh, very gracious and, and taking his, his time and, and helping us out. And, you know, I think uh, there's a large chunk of our success, I think, because of, of what he's been able to bring, um, not only from a coaching standpoint, but I think a mentor standpoint for these guys. And he's He's closer in age to them uh, than I am, so that 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 certainly helps. In the last couple of weeks, we've had Russell Payne on and Bo Oshani, and they wanted to kind of take the floor and also talk about the role they play as far as more African Americans getting head coaching jobs at at any level. Do you feel responsibility there as well now in your tenth season as the head coach at Parkland? Yeah, you know, I, I'd like to say that you know we live in a world where that doesn't necessarily matter, but yeah, there, there there's every once in a while it does pop up. Uh, I think when you're in our position, you you know if you go to convention or you go to meetings and stuff like that, it it's just every once in a while a kind of snap reminder remind you that yeah you're the only one in the room. There's a lot of pride that I take you know in that, but more importantly just being a successful uh, coach. But you know, certainly I think that should and always be a, a part of expanding our game and, and the diversity and. I kind of a lot of times equate it to to teaching. Um, you know, you want to be the best service that you can to to a diverse group of kids. You know, we know our sport is extremely diverse. So, you know, I'm trying to as much as I can, you know, promote that diversity. And you know, if you can, you find people that you think uh, could be great as a as a coach, as a mentor. Um, I think that you know, as a as a minority player myself growing up, you, you certainly would gravitate towards, you know, people who they might not necessarily have the same experience as you, but there there are some commonalities and, and that certainly helped my career. So again, I want to provide that for uh, minority uh, athletes, but also, you know, can we keep looking and keep reaching out? And for me, one of the best things that I have a chance to do is not only work with college guys, but then get them thinking about going into coaching at a pretty young age and you know I approach all my players with that same idea and so hopefully if we had diverse you know diverse team then then they can move on to the next thing and then they can be that next generation. Great interview Mark Sikora will be following your success at Parkland College top five in the country junior college division one thanks for being a part of the podcast. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, Chad Waller from the NAIA joins us next to wrap up the show. We'll be right back with the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. The 2017 NSCAA convention will be unlike any before. Taking over the downtown Los Angeles Convention Center January 11th through 15th. Network with over 11,000 peers at one of the education sessions, the extensive exhibit hall, or one of many social functions, including the college coaches reception and the All-American Luncheon. With more space and unique experiences, you won't want to miss out on the largest gathering of soccer coaches and administrators in the world. Register today at NSCAA.com. Welcome to the NSCAA podcast for the week of October 10th. I'm Chad Waller giving you exciting information again on all news around NAIA men's soccer. Let's get started. We are just past the midway point of the conference season in NAIA men's soccer and there are still seven undefeated teams remaining. Through games played on October 11th, Hastings College out of Nebraska leads the NAIA with 13 victories. In those 13 wins, the Broncos have outscored their opponents 40-10. to 10. Overall, there are 15 programs in the NAI with at least 10 wins on the season. For the fourth straight week, Oklahoma Wesleyan University claims the number one position in the latest NAI Coaches Top 25 poll. The Eagles are 10-0-1 on the year and are riding a 26-match undefeated streak dating back to last year as during that streak, the Eagles have gone 24-0-2. That streak is tied for the longest active streak in the NAIA and currently the ninth longest in NAIA soccer history. Oklahoma Wesleyan is slated to play Bethany, Kansas, who is tied for second place in the conference standings later this week and ending the week Saturday with a match against McPherson College. Another hot team in the NAIA is eighth-ranked Campbellsville University. The Tigers are 9-0-1 on the year and also hold a 26-match undefeated streak, which is tied with Oklahoma Wesleyan for the longest in the NAI. Campbellsville is doing it on the offensive end as they rank number one in the NAI in goals per game at over four and a half goals per match. Number 17, Hope International, and number 24, Southwestern Christian, are this week's top 25 newcomers. The Royals springboarded into the top 25 for the first time since October of 2014, while Southwestern Christian was most recently in the top 25 three weeks ago. There are four top 25 games this week in NAI men's soccer, including a showdown Thursday in the River States Conference as second-ranked and defending national champion Rio Grande travels to number 13 West Virginia Tech. Both teams have 11 wins on the year and are tied for the conference lead. Looking at individual honors, Mauricio Salgado of Trinity Christian has been named the NAI National Men's Soccer Offensive Player of the Week, and Brian McDowell of Cincinnati Christian University has been named the NAI National Men's Soccer Defensive Player of the Week. In two matches last week, Salgado recorded six goals for a total of 12 points. He posted a hat trick in each game in both wins against Moody Bible and Calumet. Defensively, McDowell recorded back-to-back shutout victories against Asbury and Hiawassee. He posted a combined 13 saves, including five against conference rival Asbury. He also, in goal, was credited with the assist against Hiawassee. Looking at the NAI goals leader this year, again, Daniel Whitehall of Hastings College still has the lead for the most goals with an NAI best 20 markers in 13 matches. Whitehall had a season-best five goals 
in the win over Kansas Wesleyan in late September and overall has two or more goals in six of his matches. The next closest on the goals list is Jao Costa of Truett McConnell with 19 goals. That concludes this NAIMN Soccer Edition of the NSCA Podcast. Check back next week for more exciting news around NAI men's soccer. As always, Chad Waller from the NAIA with a detailed look at the men's scene. Now we move to the NAIA women's scene. As we're just past the midway point of conference play in NAIA women's soccer, Spring Arbor is again on top of the coaches' top 25 poll as they ranked number one for the sixth straight week. The Cougars are riding an unbelievable 32-match undefeated streak with a 32-0-0 record and go for their 33rd straight winner tie Saturday against Grace out of Indiana. A remarkable stat about Spring Arbor is the fact that the defense has allowed just two goals through 13 matches while the offense has scored 48. The 32 straight wins for Spring Arbor is not the longest all-time in the NAIA. As a reference point, Mobile out of Alabama boasts an NAI best 46-match undefeated streak, which was done during the 97 and 98 seasons. Number 24 Davenport and number 25 Mid-American Nazarene are this week's newcomers in the coaches' top 25 poll. Davenport last held a ranking in, on November of 2014, while Mid-American Nazarene's last mention was earlier this year on September 27th. There are three upcoming top 25 games in the NAI women's soccer, as number 22 Campbellsville heads to number 14 Cumberland out of Tennessee, number 7 Mobile heads to number 8 Martin Methodist on Thursday, and number 3 William Carey goes to number 8 Martin Methodist on Saturday. There are still four undefeated teams in NAI women's soccer. Spring Arbor leads the NAI currently in wins at 13, followed by Davenport with a 12-0-1 record. Kaiser out of Florida, undefeated at 11-0-0, and Biola University at 11-0-1. Kristen Howell of John Brown University has been named the NAI National Women's Soccer Offensive Player of the Week while Christina Rodriguez of Biola University has been named the NAI National Women's Soccer Defensive Player of the Week. In two matches last week, Kristen Howell recorded seven goals for a total of 14 points as she posted back-to-back, back-to-back hat tricks. She is the second player in John Brown history to record multiple hat tricks in a career. In two matches played last week on the defensive side, Rodriguez recorded seven saves and two shutout victories. Five of Rodriguez's seven saves came against then number four, Westmont College out of California. Looking at the NAI goals leaders this year, Julia Skojan of Fisher has an NAI best 23 goals in 12 matches. She now stands with 95 career goals and needs 14 more to crack the NAI women's soccer top 10 career goals list. Trailing Shozan on this season goals charts is Emily Key of Park University as she's notched 21 goals in 11 matches for the NAI. Chad Waller breaking down the NAIA like only Chad Waller can. I want to thank Chad and all of our wonderful guests. Alexi Lalas, the USA soccer legend. Bob Butehorn, the head coach of the Florida Gulf Coast men's soccer team. Nikki Izzo-Brown, who has West Virginia number one in the Division I women's rankings at the D2 level. Travis Canal from Western Washington, their women's program is fantastic. At D3, Calvin College, Ryan Souders has 
that team at number 25 in the country. And from the junior college ranks, I want to thank Mark Sikora for joining us as well. Great show for the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. I'm Dean Linke. We'll see you next week. When you join the National Soccer Coaches Association of America, you join a community who live and breathe the beautiful game just like you do. You join a network of individuals who share many of the same issues, concerns, and questions as you. The NSCAA is dedicated to serving coaches at every level of the game in a number of ways through advocacy, education, and service. Be a part of the coaching community. Learn more and join at NSCAA.com.